Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Stephanie sits down with Jacob Weisberg, co-founder and CEO of Pushkin Industries. Jacob and Malcolm Gladwell started Pushkin Industries in 2018 to, as Pushkin notes, put artists and creators first. This podcast network currently has six shows and more shows in development. Prior to starting Pushkin with Malcolm, Jacob was the CEO of The Slate Group, co-founder of Penelope, and editor-in-chief of Slate Magazine. He has written for several publications, including The New York Times, New Yorker, and Financial Times. He is the author of several books and a lecturer at Yale University, where he graduated from. In this episode, Stephanie and Jacob discuss the beginnings of podcasting, what makes audio storytelling different from other mediums, and where the podcasting industry is headed into the future. Jacob, welcome to the show. Stephanie, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while, so I'm happy to have you. So if someone asks you what you do, how do you respond? I have a podcasting company. Of course, the time was when that was an unusual answer. Now it doesn't uh, differentiate you from half the people walking down the street in New York or Palo Alto, I guess. Well, everyone has a podcast. Not everyone has a podcasting company. Exactly. Not everyone has a good podcasting company or a good (laughs) podcast in general. How many podcasts do you have right now? We have, I think, six on the air, as it were, maybe another three or four in production and a few more in development. I got onto this very early. I think at, at Slate, where I was for, for 20 years, we made, I don't think we made the first podcast, but I think we made some of the first podcasts that many people listen to. It came out of a partnership originally we had with National Public Radio and on a show that's no longer on the air called Day to Day. And after doing that for a year or two, Andy Bowers, who was the producer we'd hired to, to represent Slate and the partnership, said, you know, this new thing called podcasting. And he said, I've been making one in my garage with my daughter. And, you know, I think Slate should try it. This was, I mean, it was 14 years ago. So they really were some of the very first podcasts that anybody made. And I've been kind of bending everybody's ear about this for a long time. And then, you know, starting a few years ago, people started to have some idea what I was talking about and actually be interested. Yeah, now it's the cool thing. So what was your role at Slate? And how was that transition into what you're doing now? Yeah, I'd started at Slate as a writer. My background is as a journalist writing about politics, basically U.S. politics and policy. Uh, But I was one of the people who founded Slate. Michael Kinsley, who was my mentor in journalism, was the founder. But I was one of the first employees. And then when he stepped down as editor, I took over as editor. I did that for several years. And uh, over time, it just the whole thing just became my problem. I, you know, became in charge of the business. And we'd originally started at Microsoft and um, I was involved in getting it sold to what was then the Washington Post company. So I kind of ultimately did everything there. But it was as part of the time when I was when I was editor. That was when we launched the original uh, audio shows. Got it. So that's really what got you into it. I want to know if you still believe some advice that you gave to aspiring journalists back in the day. You gave two pieces of advice. One was the people who can work at the intersection of journalism and technology. Those are the stars. Do you still think that's true? Yeah, I think it's it's funny. I mean, I think that's been probably a theme of what I've been doing for a long time. At the beginning of Slate, it was really doing journalism, but figuring out how we could use new technology, you know, which was in the early days, dial-up connections to the internet, but how we could use it to do what we did in, in different ways and try different kinds of storytelling and relate to 
readers in a different way and, and being open to those possibilities. And I have very much the same feeling now about podcasting that I did in the early days around the internet, which is that there probably are not that many times in anyone's career when they're gonna, going to get to be a part of inventing something new. New media do get invented, you know, every so often, but it's it's usually, you know, once or twice in a generation, whether you're you're talking about news magazines or in journalism, television news or radio news. I felt that way in the 90s and I feel that way now. I think every when you make a podcast of the kind that we're we're trying to make, which are all creatively ambitious, innovative, if you make a podcast that succeeds, you've helped to define what podcasting is. And in 10 years, I don't think that's going to be true in the same way. I think it's going to be much more fixed. It's not bad. It has to, things have to become more standardized and more regularized in, in media over time. But that creative opportunity, and then when you combine it with a moment when there's also business opportunity, that's always been very exciting to me. Yeah, it seems like the opportunities have definitely changed over time. How do you view the next 10, 20 years. I mean, right now people are looking into subscription-based models for podcasting and everyone's trying out different business models. How do you see where we're at today um, or with what you guys are doing at Pushkin versus where we could be in the next decade or so? Well, the revenue of podcasting is almost all advertising at the moment. And I think we will be a much healthier industry if we can supplement that with other forms of revenue and particularly revenue from listeners. I think we clearly have the kinds of listeners who will pay for, for content. They clearly care about the content in a way that indicates a willingness to pay. Now, whether people will pay directly or they'll pay for a bundled subscription or whether the content will be paid through platforms, you know, like a Spotify or an Apple, that we don't really know the answer to yet. Uh, but I think it's important to the health of the medium long term that we develop listener payment as part of part of the revenue picture. Healthy media businesses, I mean, this is something I, I became keenly aware of in uh, working at Slate. Businesses that are totally dependent on advertising and businesses that are totally dependent on one form of revenue aren't secure and aren't healthy in the way healthy media businesses are that have multiple revenue streams. Are you experimenting a bit with these different consumer paid models at Pushkin or are you kind of trying out a bunch of different models when it comes to monetizing the shows or do you not monetize? How does that work right now? We are, we're interested in testing out different things. We're making uh, several shows for Luminary, which is the first real, I think, Netflix type model of a paid platform where you pay a monthly fee for a bundle of 30 or 40 podcasts that are available exclusively that way. And we're making a few shows that are just only available to listener, Luminary listeners. That's the only real opportunity to do that on kind of a wholesale model so far, as opposed to selling individual episodes or individual series to listeners through a you know Patreon or trying to get uh, Patreon type support. Um, but we're kind of watching everything. You know, Spotify's made some moves. Apple is looks like they may be making some moves in this direction, and uh, we're we're kind of agnostic about how it's going to work. And so I think we'd like to try everything, but with a bias that we we're believers in paid content. When it comes to starting 
Pushkin, you have a business partner, right? Malcolm Gladwell. We we founded the company together. How long have you guys known each other for? How did you know it was the right time to start your own company? What was the process between that transition and deciding like, yep, Malcolm's my guy and we're going to do this? Well, Malcolm and I have been uh, close friends for more than 30 years. We were original, originally roommates. We shared a group house in Washington, D.C. Uh, I think he he's a year older than I am. He had just graduated from college. I was taking a year off from college. Uh, but we've worked in journalism together and, you know, been close for a long time. And uh, I'd been involved in launching Revisionist History with him at our old company, Panoply, which not our old company, mine and Malcolm's, Slate's old company, Panoply, which came out of Slate. And that show had done really well. But Panoply, because it was having some real success on the technology side with a platform it had developed called Megaphone, decided it wanted to just focus on the technology side of podcasting. And that was sort of a cue for me. I'd been at, at Slate and Panoply together for 22 years and had been thinking that maybe it was time to do something else. And uh, I was very committed to making that show with Malcolm. So at that point, I just said to him, hey, maybe we should just start our own company to keep making it. And that's what we did. That's awesome. Are there any fun roommate stories that you remember <laughs> where you're like, ooh, this is a good time? Well, I will tell you that in our living room, uh, where you might ordinarily have a dining room table or a sofa, uh, we had a ping pong table. And uh, we would we would come home. Malcolm was working at various places in those days. I was working at the New Republic, uh, and uh, we would we would come home from doing reporting or whatever we we're doing, and just play ferocious ping pong. And uh, we're, we're both a little competitive, at least at, at that. And uh, if you get us inside of a ping pong table, we uh, will resume those roles. We need an epic competition to take place. <laughs> Everyone fly out to Palo Alto, <laughs> and let's get a good competition. Good old fashioned competition going. We also had, um, we, I, I think we had somewhat legendary 70s parties. And of course, this was, oh in, this was in the, um, in the mid 80s. So it was not quite as, uh, as quite a familiar idea. But even then the 70s, uh, you know, the stuff you would get in thrift shops to dress for a 70s party uh, was notable. Oh my gosh, that's so fun. We need to bring that back too. That sounds great. <laughs> Absolutely. We haven't had one at Pushkin yet, although we are having uh, we are having a wrap party tonight. We just finished producing the fourth season of Revisionist History. Five episodes have aired, five more will air. But but as of, I think, yesterday, we put the final finishing touch on the final episode. So we'll be be celebrating tonight. Congratulations. That sounds fun. I hope you guys, you know, do some stuff on social media so we can all follow along with you. Our mission invites must have just got lost, but (laughs) that sounds great. So maybe to shift a bit into your shows, it might be great to start with revisionist history. What is the process like with developing a new episode for that or even developing the show altogether? Maybe if we can get some behind the scenes storytelling of like, how does that all come together? Yeah, I mean, we, we Malcolm has worked with the, with the same small team, which is now our our core team, running content at at Pushkin. Mia Lubell, who has been the executive producer of that show since the beginning, is the executive producer for our company, so she supervises the production on all our shows. Julia Barton, who's the editor on that show, is now our executive editor, working on the the scripts for for all of our different shows. And then Jacob Smith, who was, you know, junior, who'd been originally been Malcolm's assistant, is now a producer on the show. So we've been lucky to have the same core group uh, make that. Uh, but it really is Malcolm's brainchild. And every single episode 
comes out of his head. And I think when you listen to that show, you, you come to realize that it couldn't come from anywhere else. You know, the, the, the most recent episode of the show is about uh, the singer Randy Newman. You know, it brings together the sort of history of segregation in the South around Lester Maddox, who was a racist governor of Georgia, who had notoriously closed his, his restaurant rather than let blacks uh, eat there, um, with this song by Randy Newman and a fight that uh, involves Steve Bannon being invited and then uninvited to speak at last year's New Yorker Festival. And, uh, you know, you hear this and you think nobody in the world would have put those elements together in an argument uh, the way Malcolm does. And every episode really, I think, is about Malcolm's integration of a number of different themes and ideas and, and, and things he's come across, putting them into a kind of coherent whole using this sort of form of audio storytelling that he's really invented around the show. That's awesome. So... If we shift to Solvable, that show, I think, is that a newer one that you guys have just put out? That is newer. That's one of the, we've, all the other shows have been launched since Panoply began last fall. uh, Solvable went on the air just at the beginning of June. And that is a partnership with the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, They came to us with the idea of developing a program around solving the world's biggest problems and doing interviews with people who have interesting ideas about solving different problems. And um, we thought that was such an appealing project. We're not doing any other shows, at least so far, as partnerships, but we wanted to work with Rockefeller on that. That show has a host, Maeve Higgins, um, but multiple interviewers, uh, including Malcolm, me, and another friend of ours named Ann Applebaum, who's a very distinguished journalist and historian based in uh, London and Poland, uh, who's written extensively about Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. And uh, we all find people we want to talk to who uh, have ideas about how you address major, major issues ranging from homelessness to abusive algorithms on social media to food waste. And uh, we're putting together a series of 30 episodes. I think we've run maybe about eight so far on a weekly basis. But that's one of these projects. I mean, I think projects are very much around what you learn making them and the way the audience learns via the the host than the people who produce it. And, uh, you know, that show is just, I got to say for me, been such a learning experience on a different a different topic every week where I, I start know nothing, knowing almost nothing and end up knowing something. That's awesome. So what is one of your favorite stories that you've heard on the show so far or that you've been inspired by? Yeah, which one's your favorite? And they're all probably your favorite, but if you had to pick one. Yeah, well, I'll focus on one that's aired already because so make sure people will be able to listen to it. I interviewed um, a woman named uh, Miriam Jam, who just had the most amazing story. Um, She was orphaned in West Africa and abused, and she was uh, trafficked. And as as a young teenage girl living homeless, essentially, in Paris... And somehow this woman has, as an adult, taught herself going to a public library, taught herself to read, to write, and to write code. 
and has founded an organization called I Am The Code, which has the goal of teaching a million young women and girls in the developing world to write code. And they have, they're, they're not at a million yet, but they've trained thousands of people to start businesses, to become software developers. And it is the it is the most empowering thing. It's the most amazing woman. That, uh, she's the most amazing story that that she has, and you know that's an example of the kind of just extraordinary story and extraordinary person we, that I've run across making this show. And, and some of these interviews, you know, I was just sort of hearing this with my mouth almost hanging open because it's so she's such an extraordinary person and so inspiring to be around. That's amazing. Yeah, I can't wait to dive in deeper to that show and listen to some of the episodes. That sounds yeah, really great. How do you strike the balance when you have someone who's sponsoring the show or you're working in partnership with to be able to choose the guests that you want versus also letting them kind of be a part of the production or creative process? Because, you know, Mission has a lot of sponsors. We've also kind of experienced this a bit as well of like, you know, making sure the show is still what you want, but then also having a sponsor attached to it can sometimes make it a little bit tricky. How do you guys move around that if you're able to talk about that? That's interesting. It's part of what I was referring to kind of obliquely when I was talking about the risk of having a business that's too dependent on advertising. You know, if you're if your listeners are are paying for content, you have a much greater ability to say no to advertising to an advertiser that you're not comfortable with or just an advertiser that wants you to do something or say something that you'd, you'd rather not. Now, we, uh, my background is in journalism, as is Malcolm's. You know, I think we have a strong ethic around keeping a clear distinction between what's advertising and what's our editorial content. So, you know, the core issue, I think, is not to blur those things. One of the nice things about podcasting is that because we have this format of the host reading the ad, the ads are much less of an interruption and people don't mind them. They're kind of fun. Malcolm in particular has a really good time making ads for his show. And everyone understands, I think, that those are ads. They're not part of the show and that we get paid to do that. But at the same time, you know, I think you have to always maintain a strong sense of an integrity about advertising and make sure that it's not influencing the editorial content. With Rockefeller, that's a different kind of partnership. They, they're not advertisers as such. They give us a grant to make the show. And then we're free to make the show. But of course, we're very interested in their ideas and their connections to people who are really in their world, who are addressing, solving a lot of, a lot of these problems. So we maintain the, you know, the, the, the editorial say, but we want to hear everybody's ideas. When I was looking at a bit of your background, I've seen I saw that you wrote a couple books. Do you have any new ones that you're working on now or what's that looking like? Not at the moment. Having launched a, a startup uh, nine months ago, I think uh, taking on a book at this point would be would be a, a little uh, masochistic. I've loved writing several books over over my career. They've they've all been about politics one way or the other. My last book was a short biography of, of Ronald Reagan, which is in a very good series, originally started by the historian Arthur Schlesinger, called the American President Series. And there is a uniform short biography of every president. And they're mostly written by historians. Some are written by, by journalists like me. 
Um, but what's so interesting about a book like that is to try to digest a big life and a, and a big story down to its real essentials uh, and to try to make an argument that is fresh and surprising about someone like Ronald Reagan, who's both hard to see because of how recent he is and also where the people's views are, you know, very, very colored by ideology. So for me, that was that was a chance to go back and try to revisit a lot of what I thought at the time and ask whether I'd understood things correctly. My uh, The book I did before that was uh, about the Bush family, but particularly about the presidency of George W. Bush. And then um, I'd written another book about a little more uh, political theory about about government called In Defense of Government. This is my first book I wrote uh, when I was still still a young journalist. Oh, very cool. And what pulled you into politics? Was it your internship in college or was it before then? What got you excited about politics? I grew up in Chicago on the north side in a very interesting political moment in a kind of political family. Um, my, my parents weren't, they weren't politicians, um, but we were, uh, for, I was very involved growing up in what was known as the sort of independent uh, North Side politics. And my parents and their friends were a group of people who were really for the first time challenging the urban machine run by uh, Richard Daly, who'd, who'd, that had run Chicago for, for decades. And that was a that was a very exciting kind of political moment and political milieu to grow up in, in the well, by the time I was really conscious of much that was going on in the early 1970s, I would say, although it started a little little before that. And uh, I think that gave me an interest in politics that just persisted. I didn't study politics per se. I studied some political philosophy in college, but I also was interested in writing and in journalism. And uh, I did, I took a year off college and worked at the New Republic. I was referring to that year I lived in Washington. And uh, that kind of set me on the course of, of journalism about politics. So that kind of brings me back to when I was talking about the two pieces of, of advice that you were giving to aspiring journalists. The second piece, which I completely forgot until now. I was dying was to that, hear. I, I'm sure I won't remember <laughs> a word of it, but go, yeah, tell me. Like, what did I say? <laughs> so the second piece was, at the end of the day, the strength of one's writing is at the core. If someone writes well, you want to hire them. And I don't think it's a gift. I think it's the result of intensive practice. Just write a lot. Do you still think that is true? I mean, personally, at the mission, we think, yeah, writing obviously for podcasts, for anything is key. And like you said in your quote, when you find a good writer, we just try and scoop them up really quick. But how do you think about that now? And how would one go about developing good writing skills today? I mean, I think the part about practice, first of all, for for people who are who want to be writers, it's really crucial. I mean, writing is like learning a language or playing a musical instrument. You've got to spend, you got to put in the time and you've got to do it every day. You know, never, no one ever got to be a concert pianist without practicing every day for hours. And I think similarly, no one ever got to be a great writer without spending, you know, some hours a day writing. Uh, and that's the practice is important both because you, it helps you get over the fears and phobias associated with it. Um, and a lot of people do find writing intimidating or just, you know, are stare at the blank page and have trouble getting started. And if it just becomes a habitual activity you do every day, uh, in journalism, the deadline, of course, is a great aid to that. 
you know, that's the first hurdle you get over. But look, I think in, in any field, I mean, that would be, I would, I would say some version of the same thing if I weren't in journalism, because I think being able to communicate clearly and effectively and succinctly in writing is essential to, to almost anything anybody does. So it's, um, it has value whatever you do. I think hiring journalism, obviously, you know, you, you, do run, you do run into people in journalism who are very, very skilled reporters, particularly investigative type reporters, who often are not very good writers. It's why investigative reporters are often paired with writers, because, you know, they're, they're able to find out things and ferret out information that has real value but often don't have the ability to communicate it as well themselves. That's the only real exception I can think of. That's the only time you would really, you know, in journalism, hire someone who just didn't have superb writing skills. Any training materials that you would have a new hire go through? Like I know at the mission, we have people, you know, read The Hero's Journey and um, like Robert McKee's work and all that kind of stuff. Is there any materials that you would have a new writer read for your company? Uh, well, at my company, you know, it's a little different. I mean, we're hiring audio producers. Some of them are not. We're not hiring them fundamentally as writers. Um, when I've taught journalism, and um, sometimes when people ask me for a re- recommendation, I have always recommended um, George Orwell's essays because I think Orwell's essays are such models of lucid, effective, persuasive writing. And there are a few in particular, a few of those essays, like one called Politics in the English Language, that are just, you know, in 12 pages or 14 pages, whatever, if you had to distill down the essentials of how to write well and what good writing is, you know, I think I can't think of a better place to find it. One last question I had before maybe doing a little lightning round with you, which is We'll give you questions and you can quickly answer on your thoughts on it. But one question I had was when you were starting Pushkin, what kind of lessons or learnings did you take from Slate or Panopoly or any of your past career experience? What are the big lessons that you learned or you saw from like, you know, leadership skills or people that you mentored under? What did you see that you put into Pushkin um, to make this company successful? Yeah, I think Malcolm and I uh, really thought about it the same way. You know, we, we're entrepreneurs in our 50s, not entrepreneurs in our 20s, um, which affects both our appetite for risk, but also what kind of business we want to create. You know, we, we do not, we're not looking for a, a one in 10 chance of enormous success. We're looking for a, like a nine in 10 chance of building a business that we're going to want to stay involved in, you know, quite possibly for the rest of our careers, right? So I think that steers you in a number of directions. It certainly says don't get involved with anybody you don't want to work with. Only bring in people you really want to be involved with. Uh, And, you know, it's also, I think it also shaped our thinking about the financial structure. We didn't uh, take any money from venture investors, no knock on venture investors. Some of our best friends are venture investors. Well, I don't know some of our best friends, but we didn't want pressure to sell the business or grow the business faster than we want. We expect to expand things. Who knows? We may want to sell it someday, but we want to be in a position to keep control, to 
only work on things that we really want to work on and to maybe say, hey, we could be bigger, we could make be more profitable even, but we're more comfortable at a at a certain size. So I think it's really about appetite for risk, about the kind of control you have, and then just being very choosy about who you work with. Yeah, 100% agree with that. That's the one thing, at least in Silicon Valley, that I see when people are on message boards and looking for a founder, looking for, you know, a technical engineer founder. And I'm like, oh, gosh, (laughs) I would never (laughs) want to get into business with someone that you don't even know. I mean, I'm in business with my husband and I feel like I don't even know him well enough sometimes. You know? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> do, kidding, that's, that's it. That, I could ask you some questions about that, too. But it's great. I feel like you're basically family with whoever you're in business with. And what's funny is our other co-founder, Ian, always gets asked, what's it like being in business with a married couple? And he's like, no different than being in business with anyone else. We're basically all married anyways. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, going into, I mean, I'm involved with other friends in this business. M- Michael Lewis, we launched a podcast with in the spring is one of my oldest friends. And, you know, there is, you do take a certain risk when you work with friends, because if things go badly and things can go badly, you can endanger a friendship uh, in a way that isn't totally normal in business. But if it goes well, there's a real upside, which is that you get to work with your friends. And uh, I think it's going really well for us so far. And I think Malcolm and I are both, you know, really loving the chance to to work together on something. When you hire people, because I know your team maybe is a little bit smaller, maybe similar to ours, do you look for more of just the right culture and personality fit? As in like, they could be my friend and also be a good employee. And I know they'll be here for the long haul. Or are you more like, these are the skill sets we need that's what we're focused on is just getting the right person in the door. How do you think about hiring the right team? Oh, I think we're, we're focused on skills and particularly in, in our field, you know, p- people who have the skills around audio production and have experience in making shows are they're really in demand right now. And you've got to get the best people and it's not easy to get them. The other part is almost the opposite of what you said. The business does. It is we're a couple of friends who founded it. But we want a diverse and varied group of people and people who have different kinds of life experiences and people we probably never would have met otherwise. Um, and in fact, having a business is a chance to to work with people who are totally different from you in, in all kinds of ways. So, uh, you know, I think we're um, I kind of resist words like sort of fit and culture, because I think they're just sometimes euphemism for you know, hiring people who look like you or you think you're you're comfortable with. I think in hiring you, you often want to get as uncomfortable as possible. Agree. Yeah, that's such a great point. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you're like, man, Stephanie, I really just wanted to talk about this and you didn't ask me a question on this or I didn't get to touch on this. Did I miss anything before we jump into a very quick lightning round? No, I mean, the only other thing that's sort of interesting is about this moment in podcasting and, you know, all this investment that's pouring into it and so many people trying to make podcasts. It's an exciting time, but I think it's also a time when people can sort of lose their heads a little bit. I, I lived through, you know, at least one era of this in the earlier form of digital media. Um, I think you're much too young, but around the 1999-2000 bubble, when, you know, you just started to see very, some very, very irrational behavior, huge amounts of money being pumped into businesses that didn't make any sense, people just kind of wanting to kind of get on the train without really bringing anything to it. 
And I don't think we're seeing that yet in, in podcasts, I should say. I mean, I don't think we're at the sort of pets.com moment. But the, but that risk is out there. It's getting a little frothy. I think, that, you know, they're already, there are too many podcasts. There are more podcasts than, you know, well, certainly anybody could listen to. But now that doesn't mean you shouldn't be starting podcasts. I think there are a lot of not very well-made, not very ambitious, not very thoughtful kind of projects getting underway. And it's a little like, you know, the blog moment, like everybody wants to have one. And you love the sort of democratic aspect of that. But you also think, hey, wait a minute, there's a lot that goes into making these well. You hate to see too many people rushing into something without really thinking through how how to do it at a high level. We see that all the time when companies or people approach us with different podcast ideas and we try and explain to them like it takes a lot of work to start a podcast and if you're a business who wants a podcast you really have to have clear goals and know exactly where you want to head with it because if you just randomly start a podcast it might not actually meet your KPIs that you're looking for or do anything unless you're really aligned with the show that you're developing. Businesses starting podcasts themselves I mean there was a funny article in the Wall Street Journal a few months ago about how you know the most boring podcasts in the world are the these podcasts started by businesses. You know, the voice of business is not interesting per se, right? And I think they, you know, there is something for them to do in podcasts around sponsorship and in some rare cases, maybe making shows. But, you know, brands are not going to make podcasts that human beings want to listen to, even if the marketers love the idea of people listening to them in podcast form. No, we completely agree. We wrote a whole article called The Corporate Graveyard. I don't know if we actually released six. We were like, oh, this is a little bit touchy subject. It was all these corporations who tried to start their own podcast. And yeah, it's just not what they're good at. And I think that's why we always suggest like at least partner with someone who you can have it at arm's length where they can maintain the story, the direction, the creative part of it. And then you can be a little bit involved, but you shouldn't try to do one internally because it's expensive, time consuming. And it'll probably be way too biased if a company try and does it on their own. Yes. Well, you're, you're giving them good advice. All right. So we have a very quick lightning round and I want to make sure I respect your time and let you off here in a few minutes. So I'm only going to do three of the questions. And all you do is you are basically betting on the future. Okay. You say true or false. And then you have to say why. Are you ready, Jacob? Yep. Go for it. First one, podcasting will be as big as YouTubing. Yes. It, I think it will be as big as YouTubing. I don't know what where YouTubing is in, in dollar terms, but um, I think the podcasting is has a fantastic growth trajectory on the business side. But I also think it's much more permanent than YouTubing uh, or will much have a much longer life as a medium. There are podcasts being made now, including I hope some of the ones we're making that I think people are still going to be listening to in decades from now. I don't know that I would say that about anything being made for YouTube. But then again, I'm not an expert on it. Second one, discoverability will change and how instead of why. I hope discoverability will change. I think it certainly will change because it's one of the inadequacies of podcasting. Uh, There's not a great way to figure out what podcasts you would like if you're already not already steeped in listening to podcasts. Um, You know, people look at the Apple Podcasts top charts, which is a very rough proxy. You know, there are some different platforms, Surface podcasts in different ways. But for the most part, it's still very word of mouth. You you find out if you listen to a lot of podcasts, you tend to find about new podcasts by listening to podcasts. That's there with a guest from a new show or, you know, people you 
respect, tell you they're listening to something. Um, it's a very uh, ad hoc process. Now, that's sort of nice. It's kind of handmade. Uh, and, you know, there are aspects of that you don't want to lose. But I think it's very tough for the still the majority of people who've never listened to a podcast who, podcast, who aren't regular podcast listeners. They don't have a ready way to figure out where to start. All right. The third one is podcast, VR, AR, and other platforms will all collide as we've never seen before. True, false, and why or how? I don't know about that. I don't. I don't see podcasts being combined with video-based formats. I think part of the great appeal about uh, podcasts is the sort of hands-busy, mind-free, right? That you can that you can listen to them while you're driving or while you're exercising or w- while you're walking to work. That's not true of video. Video depend, uh, demands your, your full attention. You've got you've to watch it and hold it. I mean, I guess maybe you can be on the treadmill, but it doesn't, um, it's a different kind of medium. And I don't see people combining those things in interesting ways. What I do think is going to converge is podcasting and audiobooks. Audiobooks are an area we're interested in. We've, we've just been making our first audiobook, and we're you know we're producing it using much more of a kind of podcast toolkit. Uh, so I think those are two. I mean, audiobooks are you know the fastest growing part of the of the book business. That's where a combination of skills makes sense. And are you guys writing the audiobooks? Or are you taking a book that's already written and turning into audiobook? How does that look? Well, it's the, it's the latter so far. We um, Malcolm Gladwell has a book coming out in the fall called Talking to Strangers. And we produced, we've just produced the audiobook for that. But he wrote that book as someone who'd been making a podcast. So he recorded all the interviews with a high quality recorder. And he had an, an idea when he was writing it that there was going to be an audio version of it that would be distinctive. So Little Brown, which is his publisher, hired us to produce the audiobook for that. So far, that's been our only project, but it was a great, uh, it was a great one for us. And we're interested in seeing what else we can do in that area. Very cool. All right. Last question. Creatives will be in more higher demand than technical or engineers in the next decade or two? Well, speaking specifically to podcasting, I'm not quite sure about that. It depends what you define as technical. Um, Certainly engineering is a technical skill. It's going to be in very high demand. People who know sound engineering, uh, and they're really important to our process. But also, you know, producers are somewhere in between or combined elements of both. They've got to think like creatives, uh, but they also need skills. They need to be able to edit tape and use Pro Tools and think about using different sonic elements to tell a story. So in some ways, I would say you're back. You have that quote of mine about about the intersection of technology and journalism. Podcasting is very much about the intersection of creative thinking with a certain set of technical skills. Well, awesome. This has been so fun. Yeah, I really loved talking to you about all this and excited to hear all your upcoming new podcasts, new episodes. We'll definitely be tuning into all of that. And yeah, overall, had a really great time, Jacob. Thank you, Stephanie. It's a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much. Take care. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, 
and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.